If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll begin reading in verse 18 of chapter 1 and be reading through the end of the chapter there in uh, verse 25. Again, the Gospel of uh, Matthew uh, chapter 1. And we'll begin here in verse 18. I had uh, a bit of a, a chuckle this morning uh, at one of my own uh, lapses. Uh, I know you believe I never have lapses. Now, it would be strong to say that I make a mistake, uh, but I do have a lapse, and then I have to go back and correct. But I sat down here in the front, and I realized I did not have my microphone. Now, my mind very quickly went to Mike Burdett. Now you ask, now how could my, his, my mind, my microphone, or absence thereof, take me to Mike Burdett? And many, many years ago, uh, I was conducting a wedding and, uh, at a different church, but it was for some of our members at the time, and their sound system went out. And they were scrambling around trying to figure out how to get the sound system up. And uh, Mike Burdett very wisely and with great insight noted that they knew, uh, even without a microphone, that they would not have any problem hearing me. And so uh, uh, my thought was probably for this room, uh, we could get by uh, without the microphone. Uh, but I thought it best that I go ahead uh, and get it for those that uh, are utilizing our live stream, and we're glad that they're able to do that, and for those that will later uh, be able to listen to uh, these uh, sermons. We, we move forward. Uh, this is the fourth sermon of a five-part Christmas series, and we spent a lot of our time, three out of the five sermons, uh, dealing uh, with the genealogies. And I guess somewhere in something I said, there was a bit of a veiled accusation that maybe some of you in some of your Bible readings may have skimmed these genealogies at, uh, in the course of your reading uh, over the course of uh, uh, the years. Uh, there, there are some among us, uh, even today, that have complained about having to pronounce uh, the difficult names uh, within, within our Bible. I'm going to get everybody under this bus before I finish here today. And so, uh, at, at any rate, I was really captivated by what was reflected, what was represented in uh, the genealogy. And in one sense, there was an economy of words in that approximately 2,000 years of history uh, was covered in the listing of 42 generations. But, but in terms of our study of what we're preaching uh, through, uh, that, that's a substantial portion of chapter 1, even a significant portion of the entirety of the book of Matthew. And I think it's there. Uh, to make a very important point uh, related to God's plan and God's faithfulness to do that which he promised to do. But as we get into what we want to look at today, the point in time, the, the juncture in which eternity intersects with Eternity invades history. Deity becomes humanity. Even humility becomes royalty. We come to how the gospel writers choose to explain, describe, uh, narrate for us, communicate to us how it is that the eternal God, the one that dwelled in glory, glory and who was in and of himself eternally glorious, how it is, how it was, that he became a man. There are things in the Bible that I find to be shrouded in mystery that, that that I really don't have the language to explain how something happened or explain what happened. 
But just for example, I find it far easier to communicate and understand the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ than I do explaining his conception. And, and the Bible, as I say, is very, very terse in communicating that moment in time when within the body of this young woman, Mary, that the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. The Holy Spirit came upon her in a, in a unique way that was never done before and hasn't been done since and never will be done again. And within her was conceived the King of glory. In her was conceived the one who is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made, of, of the oath that God made with himself that he would redeem a people for his son. That one who is and was eternally glorious and yet took upon himself the humility of our humanity for the sake of our salvation. And so let us say with the entirety of our world, but with particular significance for us, joy to the world. Indeed, the Lord has come. Let us receive our King. For those of us that have been born again, for those of us that have trusted this King for our salvation, again, we have received our King. And let us live in the perpetual celebration, the perpetual remembrance, the perpetual confession that indeed our King is the King of glory. Read with me this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for this testimony to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would live in light of who he is, that we would live in light of what he has done, that the very purpose for there being a season, an event, a day, that we call Christmas, is for your son to enter our realm and to take upon himself our sin and to suffer on a cross in our place for our salvation. And so, Lord, as we continue to go through this very unique time of year, which has it's joys, it has its stresses, and it has its sorrows. Lord, may we never lose sight of this great reality that our King 
condescended to walk among us. Indeed, he is our Emmanuel. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We have come back and we've asked and we've answered and we continue to ask and we continue to answer that question, who is this King of Glory? We saw that indeed at least one aspect, one part of the answer is that he is the fulfillment made of the promises that God himself bound himself to in the covenants made with Abraham and then later to David. And so the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the record of who he is and that which he has done is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. That that this king that is presented to us in these gospels, in this gospel of Matthew, in this particular text, he is the one uniquely, and I, I use uniquely very advisedly in, in that it does not seem to be a powerful enough word to describe this supernatural one-of-a-kind, unrepeatable work of God in the body of Mary so that she conceived the one who is the Son of God. And in that, God becomes a man, the man, the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in this event... It, it is among, and it's, sometimes it's hard. What, you know, people will ask, well, what is the most important thing in the Bible? Or what's the most important thing in theology or doctrine? And the one part is, is really hard. You know, you, you, you can say the atonement. You can say the resurrection. There, there are a number of places you, point, you could point to as being absolutely essential. And one of those things that you have to point to as being absolutely essential. It is intrinsic to the gospel. Apart from the reality of the incarnation of this miraculous conception in the womb of of the virgin uh, Mary, there is no gospel, there is no salvation, there is no Christianity, there is no church, and folks, there is no hope. It is over, it's finished, it's done, go home. And, and you can see why this is such a, has been such a bullseye for 2,000 years. Now, again, we don't have this, we, we have a different kind of opponent, enemy in the evangelical and Southern Baptist church. Now, they, they go at it differently. But, but when I was growing up, we still had liberals in the church. And, you know, they got mad and left a long time ago. But one of the things they were always attacking was what we traditionally refer to as the virgin birth. It's really a virgin conception. She still was a a virgin when when Jesus was born, but but a a, a virginal conception. Sometimes, I think the Catholics typically talk about an immaculate conception. I don't really have a, a problem with that. But it is a uniquely conceived, a divinely conceived Son of God. It is the the means, the instrumentality that God decided to utilize in order that his son would come for the purpose of our salvation. And if, if this king, if this savior is not fully and one of our young people uh, used that word to, to, to brought me great joy this morning when, when she understood that, that Jesus Christ is fully, that's big. He is fully God and man, both, not 50-50, 100%, 100%. He's fully God and man through this means, mechanisms, machinations, whatever you want, of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, working within Mary. So that indeed, this one individual, Jesus Christ, could indeed accomplish our salvation. Now, 
I think, and I honestly think this is a fool's errand to start asking questions. Well, could God have done it differently? Uh, could he have done it differently in terms of an incarnation, an atonement? All Just hush. <laughs> Just hush. This is the way God chose to do it. God can do what God chooses to do, and he chose to do this, and we should be happy and satisfied with it. So don't ask questions that aren't asked. Okay, listen, you'll have enough questions of the ones you need to ask. So don't ask silly ones. So, now what has obviously intrigued me is Matthew's appropriate emphasis that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Again, Abraham and David, and he, he goes through all of this business of presenting this uh, genealogy. And, and so what are the implications for this? And I, I got to tell you, if I'm a Jew living 2,000 years ago in Palestine, Jesus is not going to meet my expectations. I just have to be honest with you. I, I, I mean, that, what's the point of telling us all of this? That he is the inheritor of the promise, of the privilege, of the throne given to David, if it's going to work out like it did. That, that just blows my mind that, that, that indeed he is the rightful and he's the promised king, but the gospel writers allow us to have all of these associated expectations. And so what's the point of letting us anticipate and expect all of this? And then to turn it all upside down and inside out. And I'm going to have a little fun today because I'm going to kind of present some things to you and maybe some questions, and I might not answer them for you. That's just tough, isn't it? But you need to think about them, okay? And so that, that, that's a challenge for me. I mean, if he's a king, you got to have a kingdom. And so, and, 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 and it seems to me that the kingdom ought to be something like the kingdom that these 42 people that went before him were supposedly in charge of. Now, again, that last third, they didn't rule over anything because there wasn't there, nothing there to rule for the most part. But the earlier ones, they had a throne. They had a kingdom. And so a kingdom implies a realm. By realm, I, I mean something along the lines of an area, area a, a, a geography, boundaries, you know, land, a place, and within that realm, they're, they're citizens. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. But there's a realm that's, that is ruled over by a regime, or there are rulers that, that exercise authority. Now, again, in some regimes, there's legitimate authority. In some regimes, there's an illegitimate authority. That's a long, but, but again, they're, they're, they're rulers or they're regimes, and they're regulations. They're, they're rules within the regime. This is how we live together as citizens of the regime. You look at the old covenant. They had the best set of rules any regime could ever have. Yeah, I know you, you go, no, that was hard stuff. They, they, they said stone rebellious children. And all the parents said, well, hey, I'm on, I'm in. Hey, let's go back to it. Come on now. God, pay attention. Those rules were for everybody's good. They worked. They were wise. And so there, 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 there are uh, regulations, rules, and there are residents. There are people within the they're, they're people that make up the realm, the citizenship. Even there's some sense of recognition that, that those are inside and those are outside recognize that this is a kingdom. Why do armies mark a kingdom? Because they recognize there's a kingdom there and they want to destroy the barriers of that kingdom. They want something the kingdom has to be theirs. So there's, that's, that's why you fight wars. So how are we to understand this in view of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing that went down in history, the thing that went down... 2,000 years ago, even as we think about it, as just before Jesus would be crucified, 
Pilate looked at him. This guy's not a threat. You had a political operative, a government official, that understood what a threat looked like. He could evaluate that which threatened the Roman rule. Agreed? He said, hey, we shouldn't worry about this guy. So how do we think about that? And, and Matthew goes on as we, as we continue to read the, the book that the wise men show up. We'll look at that next week. Matthew recorded it. I mean, he's, he's enhancing my anticipation. Who is it that's been born king of the Jews? And they know the, the, the people he asked the question knew what they were talking about. And then Matthew records for us the forerunner, John the Baptist. Well, how are you to live? How are you to respond in view of this king and kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of, hand, of heaven is at hand. And you know how, you know, you know political ads, I'm so-and-so, and I approve of this message. It's a lie, but I approve of it, you, you know. Come on, folks. Y'all killing me. Killing me. But Jesus didn't really say, I'll approve of that message. But you know what he said? He came preach the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, where's the realm? Where's the regime? Where the, what's the rules and regulations? What are the responsibilities of the citizens? As we think about that, and this goes beyond Matthew's gospel, but this very enigmatic statement that Jesus made. He told one of the religious leaders one night, except a man be born again, he just doesn't get it. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now again, I think there's more to that than just when you die, you don't go to heaven. Okay? You don't understand the message of the kingdom. You don't understand the king of the kingdom. You don't understand the realm of the kingdom. We could go down. You just don't get it, except God does something dramatic personally within you. Now, Jesus, as recorded by John, would later say again in regards to standing before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, if it were, we'd come over and stomp you. That's the Somerville, Georgia paraphrase of what all that Jesus said. There's a couple other things I could say we'd say in Somerville, but I'll let that go. Yeah. If, 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 the, if my kingdom, of which I am the king, you're right, I, I'm a king. If my kingdom were exactly like the kingdom that you're subject to and have some authority as related to, we would come out here and we'd mop the floor with you. That's the way this would work. But it's a different kingdom. It is a different kind of kingdom. And so we're left with these gospels and this presentation that Jesus indeed is a king, and there's no point in putting all of this in here. There's no sense proving that he has a right to a throne if he has no point of contact, no point of context in this world. And, and sometimes I think we as Christians become very Gnostic. You know, we become very so super spiritual that, you know, my Christianity has nothing to do with this life. When this life's the only thing God has given you to get ready for the next life, there won't be any second chances in another life. So you know what that means? This life is really, really important. It is vitally important. Every moment of every day is vitally important. And so, as we think through this, as we continue to, to think and to celebrate Christmas, as we continue to ask and answer, well, who is this king of glory and where where if, if, he's, if he's the king of glory if he's the if he I think by definition by implication he's a glorious king then where's the glory of his kingship 
where's the glory of that kingdom? I mean, and, and y'all have heard me say in, 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 in these weeks and in some Wednesday night studies, I mean, is, it, is the glory just the fact that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory? Is that it? Now, here's the thing. If God says that's enough, it's enough. Right? If God said that's it, that's enough. That's enough. Is, is it... Now, I'm, I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'll just, I'll just tell you. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. Y'all not looking real glorious this morning. <laughs> and you don't have to say the same thing back to me. Is this it? Our glorious king has redeemed us, has acted for our salvation. That's pre- I don't know about y'all. That's a pretty big deal. He forgave my sins and adopted me as a son and gave me citizenship in this kingdom. Y'all look like y'all are real happy about it. Yeah. Huh. But is this it? If it is, so be it. The glorious king is dwelling within us and among us. If that's it, that's it. Is it something later in the course of history that we're going to be so effective in preaching the gospel that a tremendously larger segment of the world is going to become believers and that's going to reflect the glorious presence of our king? I'm for it. If that's the way it's going to work, so be it. I believe the gospel is powerful enough to save every person on this planet. Do you believe that? (laughs) Y'all don't look real happy about it. We're having a hard time here this morning, folks. Or at least y'all are. I'm kind of having fun. But yeah. Yeah. Is it going to be kind of mundane? Yeah, the gospel's present, and we'll see a few people saved, and we'll rock on. We'll survive. And then we get this kind of golden age at the end of this age. Some people, of course, biblically, the millennium, thousand years. If that's the case, so be it. I'm for it. If that's what God chooses to do. Or, or again, ultimately, is God going to demonstrate his faithfulness just by taking us who are inglorious and non-eternal, and just putting us in the face of the glorious one and letting us gaze upon his glory and revel and be thrilled by that glory forever and ever and ever. I mentioned a moment ago, I love Christmas. I didn't mention that, but I love Christmas. Saturday, I'll stand, up, Lord willing, before my cousins, and out of 30 aunts and uncles, one surviving aunt. And I'll tell them about Jesus. All the fun times, all the silly things, all the football games in the backyard, they're over. Never to be repeated, most likely. All that's over, and that's... I have to tell you, it really does make me sad. It'll be hard for me to speak to that group because of the great loss. That's the way it is. And I could go on and on and on. But here's the hope we have. This, at some level, life in itself, even the gathering of our church, at least to the naked eye, isn't particularly glorious. But the promise is what? Number one, it is glorious. It is. Notice the present tense verb. It is a glorious thing for us to be gathered here today. And it always is. And it always will be. We're here for a glorious purpose. We have a glorious king. And the promise is, and it helps, I think, Then one day, All the questions, 
all the questions will be answered. I'm not even sure there'll still be questions, folks. Because <laughs> it'll all be wrapped up in what? The glory of his face. The glory of the face of the king of glory. Well, let's look at this business of Joseph and his crisis. In fact, this is really not the way I'm preaching it, but you know, outlines are one of those things, you know, it just depends on how you're going to work with the text. But you could entitle the sermon or use the outline points, the convincing, the conviction, the consolation, the commitment of Joseph. Because he changes his mind. He changes his mind because there's what? There's good news. There's good news. So Joseph and his crisis. Now, we've been kind of preparing uh, for this. I mentioned last week the, the transition the change from the begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, uh, all the way down uh, to uh, verse 16, where we get a passive verb for Ganeo, and it's a, uh, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Uh, didn't, not Joseph begat Jesus, because he wasn't the begatter, okay? He wasn't in the begatting business, okay? And, and, and so, we're, we're, we're prepared or at least just a little bit of a tweak here. If you read, and you read closely, and I know you did, you picked up on that. You picked up on something's going to be a little different. And, and we get down to verse 18, the beginning of our text today. The Greek reads, to day. That's the way it would come into English, T-O-U, one word, to. That's a definite article, the. Not a, the. Not a hat, the hat. Bring me the hat. Not a hat. Not one with those A's with the mullet on it, but the hat, the hat, with the right kind of A, the right kind of color on it, okay? The hat. That's the definite article, okay? <laughs> Two, the second word day. It's a conjunction. Sometimes it's translated and, sometimes but, sometimes now. In other words, go to the store and get some milk. There's continuity. There's two things I want you to do. Go to the store and get some milk. Now, I don't know if y'all have ever experienced this. I was told yesterday, go to the store and get some milk. Get some skim milk. They ain't a jar in the refrigerator that says skim. It says whole, it says 1%, it says 2%, it says low fat, it says no fat, but they ain't S-K-I-M anywhere in that building. <laughs> I have to make a phone call. Now, I have received this little lesson before. <laughs> but I can't remember which one is which. I'm not even sure now. That was yesterday, which one's which. Oh, I think I'm going to put it in a note in my phone. Go to the store and get some milk. Okay, connected. Okay. Uh, go to the store, but don't you dare bring back <laughs> now I'm getting close to home. Yeah. Discontinuity. Now he didn't tr translate, or our ESV didn't translate and or but, it's now. So that was then, all the genealogy. Now we're going to talk about what I have been intending to talk about the whole time. Now we're going to talk about, and it stands and in continuity, but it's distinctly different as well. And it's about the one unique birth, not a birth, but the birth of the one and only Son of God. And I really thought that was good, and y'all, okay. Now, so he tells us this is how the birth of Jesus Christ, our King, came to take place in the situation that he's going to describe as these two uh, young Jewish peasants. And I, I've, I've already ran a little bit long, so I'm going to have to cut here, so start cutting some things. 
but it really stands in contrast. Where did all of this begin? With two old people named Abraham and Sarah that were rather helpless and hopeless. And it comes down to this young couple, Joseph and Mary, who presumably are perfectly capable of having children. But again, God turns several of his motifs, several of his themes, inside out and upside down, that of the pain of childbearing, the, the curse of barrenness, and all of a sudden this presumably very fertile woman who can have children, but she's not going to have children in the normal way because Abraham and Sarah, they're going to have children in a normal way. But again, God's going to superintend it. He's going to make it possible. He's going to make that which was impossible possible. That ought to scare all of us older people. So uh, at any rate, God's going to turn that inside out And there's going to be a child born. And it's going to be different from the way all of these other generations have been produced. I will say this, one interesting thing. You remember the four ladies that are mentioned, four women that are mentioned in the genealogy? Uh, they, they, they are, by definition, schemers. They all got a plan. Now, I'm not saying all of them were necessarily evil plans, but, but for the most part, they really were. Whether it's Sarah and her scheming, or Tamar and her scheming, or it's uh, uh, Ruth and her mama, and their scheming, and Bathsheba, possibly, and her scheming. And Mary is presented as what? May it be unto me, as the Lord has said. What a contrast. What a contrast. So, they are betrothed, we're told there in verse 18, which is something like being engaged, but in the ancient world it was far more binding and it required an actual divorce, a writing of divorcement to end that particular uh, arrangement, that particular uh, engagement. And so the reality was that while she was presumed to be chaste, they were engaged, she is pregnant. And Again, notice how that is described before they came together, okay? And I'm not going to, I could kind of prove that. I don't, don't have the time, but that's just a fact, okay? That, that's just true, okay? She, that her and Joseph have never uh, engaged in physical intimacy. And she is pregnant, which brings us to this dilemma that Joseph had. And if you're an astute reader, it will produce a dilemma in your mind. Because what's Matthew's point? Jesus is the son of Joseph, the heir to the throne. If Joseph divorces Mary, what happens? The right to the throne is lost. And so it's very important that Joseph accept that he's going to be the father of the one conceived in the womb of Mary. And so we're told here, there. look at verse 19 that he's a just man and he was unwilling to put her to public shame, that she's pregnant. Evidently, he doesn't believe the story that this is a divine child. Uh, I, I haven't been immoral. The baby was conceived in me by the work of the Holy Spirit. And my suspicion is, now nobody, nobody sometimes I can ask some questions. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 39, we're told that Mary goes to visit her cousin or her relative, Elizabeth. She goes from Nazareth to somewhere in Judea, 70, 80 miles. That's, that's pretty good ways in the ancient world, okay? And I, I wonder, I don't know this, I, I've, and nobody's taken it up. But had Joseph said to her, I'm going to divorce you. You go off and have this child. Do, do what you will with it. Have it adopted or whatever. But I'm going I'm to try to protect your, best, your reputation at some level. It's, I don't know. I don't know if that's what's going on with her going. But somewhere in the midst of what Joseph had planned in his mind and his heart, he has this dream in which an angel comes and reveals to him that he should have no fear. Here is the explanation. 
for her pregnancy. Now, I, don't, I know this kind of be, sounds a little silly, and I guess it is, but still, I don't know. We don't know. I wonder if Mary ever reminded Joseph, well, you didn't believe me, but you believed the angel. I don't know. But, but he was convinced, and of course, I believe that convincing was just as much a work of the Holy Spirit as it was the message and the messenger within that dream. So we have two pious, I believe, what, we, what I sometimes refer to as old covenant saints that are being faithful to God and want to honor him in all things. Joseph is faced with this dilemma, and God reveals to him the good news of the incarnation of the Son of God. Which brings us to uh, this angel and his announcement uh, Joseph is considering all of this, and notice here in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Well, there go my expectations through the roof again, right? Remember, you know, that, that, okay, the, what, what, the, guy, the, the one that's going to be born is going to be something like David, and David was powerful and successful. That's what I'm uh, and anticipating, and so... He receives this reassuring, reassuring uh, message, and it is explained to him this business of the working of the Holy Spirit that is the direct means through which Jesus uh, dwells within the womb of Mary. And as I mentioned a minute ago, this is a point that those that oppose the gospel love to attack. And it's one of those things, if you can destroy the reality of the God-man, the unique Savior of the world, the Son of God, then essentially you undermine the entirety of the Bible. All of these things are at stake. You undermine the entirety of the Bible. And if I can undermine the Bible and I can impuge and indict the reality of the uniqueness of the Son of God, at the end of the day, then I become a functioning atheist and I do what I want to. There's no one to give an account for, which is what I want. That's what I'm wanting out of the deal. It's not that I'm, I'm so hostile to the truth as it pertains here. I just don't want to be accountable. I don't want to think about having to give an account. I want to do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it in the manner that I so choose. Okay? So that's why it's a, a point of contention. And so she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Notice there verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. I had planned to wax long and eloquent about that. But Jesus comes for the unique purpose of saving his people from their sins. Now I mentioned a moment ago about his kingship. That is also language that could be used of a king, of a government official. Uh, the first, among the first prophecies we see regarding Jesus found all the way back in the book of Genesis is that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. How does the scepter not depart from Judah? It's that it is given to the Son of God, the Eternal One, Jesus Christ Himself. Isaiah speaks of the government being upon uh, His shoulders. When Zechariah uh, spoke of Jesus, he, he described Him as one who would save them from their enemies. The psalmist in Psalm 18 spoke of Him as the Lord, as His rock, my, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation. I am saved from my enemies. Wow. Huh. That gets my attention. What, what, what kind of king? Are, wait a minute, my kingdom's not of this world. I am a king. But he comes, and, and again, in, in this geopolitical context of 2,000 years ago, why are the Jews having such a hard time? And they've been having it for 500 years, directly result of their sins. So, I mean, it's very easy to say he's going to save people from their sins in the way he is going to deal with the Romans. Then the Romans are there. Why? Because of their sins. You could go there. You could begin thinking some things. 
because of that. In other words, we import very quickly our spiritual, religious, Christian. But in the ancient world, there's a little different concept. There was a little different expectation. And so we see here the angel and the announcement that brought consolation, brought conviction, brought commitment, again, uh, from Joseph. And so we see here, having said all of this, she's going to have a son. going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because that name translated means Yahweh saves. He's going to save his people from their sins. And then we see Matthew in his commentary or Matthew in his message. Notice verse 22. All of these things took place to fulfill what was written 780 or so years before Jesus was born, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, we read that earlier. And here was the thing. King Ahaz at that time, the king of Judah, was perplexed in that the enemies were surrounding him and threatening to annihilate him and again eradicate the throne and all of the heirs to the throne. And Isaiah gives him a message. No, 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 no. It's not going to be successful. It's going to stand. It's not going to stand. Or you're, you're going to stand and they're not. And here's a sign. There's a young woman who is currently a virgin, and she's going to have a son. Okay? And so that happened. There was a woman living in Ahaz's day, and she had a baby, and that was a sign that God was going to be faithful to that. What he, she said, he was going to preserve king and kingdom. And then what? Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we, now I can misinterpret Scripture, can't I? I don't, but I could. It's possible. It's within the realm of possibility. But Matthew, writing God's Word, can't, can he? And so he says what? That that prophecy from nearly 800 years ago is now reaching its ultimate and perfect fulfillment that the virgin, while still a virgin, has conceived a child, and that child is the God-man, and that God-man shall be known as Emmanuel, that is the one who, in whom the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Because He is this promised King and promised King of glory. And so Matthew, I think it's five times in the first two chapters, picks up these Old Testament quotations and says, that is now this. this. This is how it's being fulfilled. And so Jesus is the promised fulfillment of the promises to David and to Abraham. And so we find here that Joseph comes to his resolution. He took Mary. We're told how he lived with her and the line is preserved. He, as the adoptive father of Jesus Christ, took him as his own, and he named him, which made him the legal heir to that throne that has been so described in those genealogies. So Jesus is the king, and indeed, he is the king of glory, the eternal one has broken into time and to space. The one who is eternally royal has taken on this great reality of a kingdom, of establishing a kingdom. There really is a kingdom. Now, we can fuss and fight and we can carry on and we can do whatever about exactly how that kingdom's going to reach its zenith. Okay? We can now, and it's fine. But what we know is what? The king has come. And he has done the glorious work that a glory, only a glorious king can do. And that is he's established a kingdom that is both in this world, but it is not of this world. It is a kingdom that is not of this world. But indeed, he is a king. He has chosen to leave his subjects in this world for the time being. I don't know why, in a sense. Why not just the moment you become a Christian, why not just take you home to glory and not have to deal with all this? 
But he's left us here for a purpose. He's left us here to exercise, to demonstrate his authority because all authority has been given unto me upon heaven or in heaven and upon earth. So go and debate it endlessly. Now go, just go make disciples. You, you, you advance my kingdom and the glory of that kingdom will be visible to those that have the eyes to see it. That kingdom will be real. It'll have a realm. It'll have a regime. And I am the regime, by the way. And it will endure. And it will accomplish exactly what I've ordained it to do. Just like my word going forth will accomplish the purpose before, for what I've sent it. My son going forth will accomplish the purpose for which I sent him. And the kingdom will exist for the kingdom, for the purpose for which I have ordained that there be a kingdom. And so, we are indeed, we are citizens of that great kingdom. Let us receive our king. I, my mind goes a lot of places in sermon preparation. My mind yesterday went to Luke 10. We were getting prepared to, to do all the things. We've been wrapping presents and Ellen worked all day yesterday and all the things we got to do to get ready for the next couple of weeks. You know what came to me? Martha, Martha, you're worked up about a whole lot of stuff. And Mary has chosen the better portion, that which endures. These things will come and go. They really will. But the kingdom and the opportunity to enjoy the fact that as the king of glory, he has brought us into this glorious kingdom. Let us not only receive our king, but let us rejoice in our king and our citizenship in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed a word to us. Let us Receive and let us rejoice in the good news of a kingdom and a king that shall never, it hasn't ever been, nor ever will it ever be shaken. It is the kingdom that only, not only endures, it is the kingdom that triumphs. Lord, bless us as we go through these next few days, this coming week. Bless us as we step ever further, ever closer to that day in which we'll revel in the face of the one who indeed is the King of glory. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.